I would argue that we are experiencing a calamity uh, of large economic proportions that essentially amount to a regime change in the market era. And there will be a political comeuppance, most likely, because of that, uh, that we haven't foreseen. What can I do? What can a listener do? My opinion is you play defense. Okay, so how do we play defense? Welcome to the Every Breath Counts podcast. I'm Ryan Sheckle, health enthusiast, amateur ultra runner, and award-winning business consultant. And each week, I interview the most accomplished people in the world, from professional and Olympic athletes to CEOs, best-selling authors, and even the occasional magician to demystify what it takes to achieve success at the highest level. Take what you can from these stories to optimize your mind, your body, and your career so you can make every breath count. Thank you for investing the time in the show and yourself. Now let's get started. As prices and unemployment go up and the stock market goes down, I wanted to bring on a guest that predicted the current economic conditions and is reaping the rewards for his clients. Brennan Redman is a financial advisor at Sage Ruddy in Rochester, New York. Brennan shares how to have a healthy money mindset before examining the current economic landscape. He also shares the moves he made to prepare for and thrive in his portfolio and how to identify the next big move to profit from potential recession and inflation. If you find this episode informative and entertaining and want to support the podcast, you can give a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And I'll be grateful if you copied the link and shared it with a friend. Now get ready to invest in yourself with Brennan Redmond. We were just talking ahead of time, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about is we're friends, and I've seen you driving around recently a brand new toy. And dude, it looks like <laughs> the fastest car I've ever seen. You got a new Corvette, right? It's the, it's a, we call it the Batmobile. It <laughs> looks like it. Yeah. It looks and like it. It's, it's not brand new. It's a 2015. So it's, oh, okay. It's had one owner before. And uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I, I love, cars. I'm a car guy and uh, I'm having the most amazing year in business. And so I just decided to sort of splurge. It was an impulse thing, but yeah, it's also, it's very fun. It's very loud. I apologize for that in advance. <laughs> Dude, I could hear it like when you pull out. Yeah. It's funny. Um, you had the Mustang though a couple years ago, right? You ended up getting rid of that. Which So faster, slower, more fun, less fun? The Mustang is like an entry level sports car and this is a, a real sports car. What is it? Is it like a... Because I know those have huge... Like, is it a V12 or something like that? No, it's a supercharged V8 that puts out okay. 650 horsepower. Jeez, man. Yeah. That thing's got to be fun to drive. Two seats? Two-seater. Um, it's fun to drive, but it, you also have to be careful with it because it's got so much power and Corvettes um, have light rear ends. So oh. if you hit the gas too hard, even at significant speeds, you could spin out. So spin out or just like like fishtail spin out or is it like well, with the traction the traction control will catch you so you'll okay. just sort of fish a little bit yeah um, but if you were to have the traction control on you could totally wipe out and spin out while even going sixty miles per hour down the road so jeez I have to uh, get used to it I I intend to go to a track to take some lessons to learn how to be a better driver. But it's you know it's just a, a fun toy. That'd be cool. They do it. They do it over at um, Watkins Glen, don't they? Is that where you that? go? That's a big track, though. They have smaller tracks around, and a buddy of mine's going to take me out to one. But yeah, it's uh, the difference between men and boys is the price of their toys. Right? <laughs> so that's all it is. Big toy. I wanted to ask about that. What should we really be thinking about in terms of our money mindset? Should we spend what we have? Should we enjoy it in the time we have here in this world, or should we be really focused on the future? Uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> uh, so in, in my line of work, I always uh, tell people that the goal is not to die with the most amount of money possible. Money is a tool to help you accomplish happiness. And there's tension between the present and the future. And you have to learn how to responsibly balance that. So if you set your priorities and meet those savings objectives, then once you're done, then have some fun. Yeah, it's my attitude about it. So yeah, it's um, it's odd at work because sometimes I uh, I'm in the situation where I'm trying to encourage clients to spend money, and you know, 
That's got, to well, tell them to enjoy it. Because if they don't, somebody's gonna. <laughs> so it might as well be them. They earned it. So go have fun. That's got to be hard for some people too, especially in the situation we're in right now. Like, are we technically in a recession? Before we get get into the finance stuff, I my compliance department would want me to say that the things that we're going to talk about today are forward looking, in my opinion, and that you should not act on any of the things that I say without talking to your own financial advisor. Um, that being said, uh, recessions are only ever diagnosed um, ex post facto. So you never know when one began until typically it's over. Mm. However, a technical recession is defined as two quarters of negative GDP growth. We did have a negative quarter in Q1. And Q2 now, anybody can go Google GDP now and see what the current expectation is for the current quarter's GDP growth in the U.S. And right now that's at zero. So it could kind of go either way. It's trending down. So uh, if hypothetically, so this gets to the point of, are we in an academic recession or are we in a, what feels like a recession for most people? And I would say the, my opinion is that we probably will be in a technical recession, uh, but that we are certainly in economic decline. All leading indicators, coincident and forward-looking, are taking a nosedive. And so if we escape technical recession, the forward-looking indicators are are not good. And when it's all done, people will look back and say, maybe it didn't technically meet the definition, but it was all a recessionary period that we are experiencing right now. I actually heard something recently that the Dow was down, um, was it 11 of the last 12 was it months or quarters? You know what? It was 11 last 12 weeks, and that hasn't happened since um, Correct. 29, yeah, 1929. It, it was right. So we have been in an orderly bear market. Yeah. Not a disorderly bear market, which we saw in March of 2020 during the COVID, where there was, you know, panic selling, uh, complete and total capitulation by institutional and retail investors. This has been a largely orderly, steady uh, march down. But we have been in a bear market now for six months. But we have not had a washout type of sell-off, panic, all-out panic event yet. Yeah, well, it's scary to think about. I mean, especially when you're thinking about something that is progressing slowly. Because while you're in the midst of it, you're wondering how lows are going to go. Uh, that's a walk. million dollar question. I know. You do that one, you could retire. So when I'm looking at um, my portfolio within the stock market this fiscal year, uh-huh. it's down quite a bit. Call it 20, 25%, I believe. But you just said you're having your best year ever. What are you doing differently than, than me? So I'm know? not an index investor. So I'm an active manager and I'm actively trying to avoid pitfalls for clients. And uh, I've had a great deal of success uh, in this bear market and uh, for which I am grateful and so are my clients. So your strategy of just ride through uh, whatever market comes, yeah. own, own the market, low cost, and you'll be okay, has worked 100% of the time in the past. I have no reason to believe it, it won't work again. But you could experience some very long and drawn out and painful time periods. And I would argue that we are experiencing a time, uh, calamity uh, of large economic proportions that essentially amount to a regime change in the, um, uh, in the market era. Mm. So from we've been in a declining inflation and declining interest rate environment really since 1980 and lots of things work well uh in a declining interest rate declining inflation environment that don't work well in a rising interest rate and rising inflation environment a lot of the strategies a lot of the investment managers uh have grown up during that period and have never invested through a different 
regime. And so, for example, a uh, risk parity strategy or otherwise known as por- uh, portfolio management or modern portfolio theory where you have a certain more amount of your portfolio in stocks and you have a certain amount of your portfolio in bonds and they have a negative correlation and your bonds hold up when the stocks do poorly and when the bonds are frustrating it's typically the stocks are doing well and you know, that that's broken uh the 60 40 portfolio is having its worst year i believe ever um yeah and, and that was that was vogel right the van didn't he uh um, volker 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 paul volker was okay. the chairman of the fed appointed by jimmy carter and he rose interest rates to uh ostensibly crush inflation back in the 19 early late 70s and early 80s i follow a, a similar ideology to that right like it's stocks and bonds of some sort yes um and like while the stocks have gone down so have the majority of the bonds and my concept of this is so elementary compared there's to yours no but place to hide, right? it, it doesn't yeah there's no place to hide so this is what the the regime change is essentially i've made a a call last year that would be a great call for anybody's career which was that the inflation was going to get out of hand mm-hmm. and that was going to break the stock market and it would be bullish for the things that had underperformed for uh, the, a decade or more and it would be terrible for the things that had led the market for the last 12 to or since the previous recession which was the great financial crisis and so um it's it's good to think of inflation as a magnet that pulls interest rates in its direction. So if inflation is high, it will pull interest rates up towards the rate of inflation naturally in an economy. And if inflation is low, it will pull interest rates down, mm. uh, you know, down, down, down until it you know is essentially they essentially meet. And so the uh, technology stocks, the growth stocks, where earnings are in the out years, need uh, low inflation and therefore low interest rates to have their valuations make sense. So if you are, you know, you're planning on a lot of earnings for your growth company that is ten years out, well, all you have to basically bring that back to a present value. And if inflation is very low. It pulls back very well, but if inflation is very high, it pulls back very poorly. And so there, uh, the regime change was from growth leadership in the markets. So you saw, and this had a real uh, bubble effect with COVID too, with the economic lockdowns and things that did well were things like Amazon and Facebook and Zoom. Uh, these were all the growth stocks. It was a perfect storm to the benefit of these technology, communications, growthy type sectors. And uh, that uh, that all is unwinding. We're in the process of seeing uh, another two, or 1999 NASDAQ bubble implode. And that uh, inflation dynamic, um, which we can talk a lot about, is, is likely to persist. And it's likely to continue to have these uh, effects uh, which favor investments that have done well in prior inflationary periods, which of which there are some. So like the 1970s is a good example. Um, the, you know, the World War II and the post-war era for probably five to 10 years was another era. So essentially, if you look at what did well during those time periods, it was Real assets, excuse me, real assets, mm-hmm. uh, things like oil, metals, industrial metals, farmland, uh, gold, silver, all of those things did real well. And so, you know, last year I rotated out entirely. I, told, I sold my last tech stock in, in uh, December, and I've been oh, wow. essentially uh, gold and commodities. And it's so I've had a wonderful year. And uh, so there you go. That's how I've done it. Um, 
the fear is like you see something running high all the time. It's like, yeah. you know, the tech is going crazy. And, and COVID was a great example of that, like you alluded to, just like all these tech stocks blew up. Right. Like, how high are they going to go? How high are they going to go? Yeah. And then, so then to completely get out of there and get into commodities is scary. It almost seems like nothing is correlating to success, at least in my portfolio, right? Yeah, like, yeah. And maybe it's just that, and correct me if I'm wrong, it, it doesn't have to have exponential growth. It just has to maintain <laughs> yeah. its store of gold value. Is, and Gold is flat yeah. this year, right? Which is losing to inflation, but it's crushing the stock market. Yeah. So the other problem is, uh, and you're probably faced with this, um, most people's retirement plans through work their 401ks, their 403bs were designed to work well in a regime that, in my opinion, we're leaving. Mm. So, for example, at Sage Ruddy, I requested that they add a commodities fund and a gold fund to our 401k lineup. And um, those funds will be available in the next two weeks or so. And, um, you know, I will be availing myself of those funds, you know, just for my compliance, (laughs) (laughs) their happiness. Again, this is not specific advice you have to talk to your financial advisor but you know that's what i'm doing say you couldn't manage your own money right you had to give all your money to someone else how would you look for a financial advisor like what would you ask them great question and i have a a workshop that i put on called fire your broker which is essentially how to hire a financial professional and i put that on through sage ruddy university which you can if you go to sageready.com, you can find a copy, a uh, video of that presentation. It's called Fire Your Broker, and it basically walks you through 10 criteria that you would want to use to evaluate your options. So you could, you know, create a little, you know, spreadsheet. And on the, you know, the rows, you could have these 10 criteria, and on the columns, you could have the different advisors yeah. you're considering, and whoever checked the most boxes, you probably would be making a good choice. But, you know, you, it's not just financial professionals. I mean, we are not in the a typical person like you or me is not in the business of hiring professional help all the time. We hire legal professionals. We hire medical professionals. We hire financial professionals. And, you know, what the hell are we doing? I mean, (laughs) I mean, we rely on some advice. We rely on some credentials. But, you know, how do you know you're you're doing a good job or you're making an optimal choice? And so, I, you know, if you go to SageReadyUniversity.com, You'll find my presentation there and uh, watch it and you can. Um, what What are the top three criteria in your mind then? Uh, the top three criteria would be somebody has to be a full-time fiduciary. The other would be um, top three. Uh, work on a fee-based level so that there's no um, commission conflict of interest. And the third would probably be credentials. The unfortunate part about our industry is that in order to be licensed to sell securities by the government, you don't even need a high school diploma. What? (laughs) Last I looked to pass the Series 7 or to apply to take the Series 7, you didn't need to even prove that you have a high school diploma. Wow. So you just have, but you still have to study and understand, like, yeah, it's not very. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not real training, though. Right. Um, but so if somebody has a CFP, yeah. so which stands for Certified Financial Planner, or a CFA, which stands for a Chartered Financial Analyst, those types of things you do these days need a bachelor's degree uh, and relevant experience, and to be able to pass rigorous uh, qualifying exams and stay up uh, through continuing education. So. While the circumstances of the industry are such that uh, you could just be a salesperson and pass this, you know, the license exam, it's pretty easy for consumers to avoid that fate if they look, you know, mm. look a little deeper. It's almost counterintuitive in a way. My assumption was always, well, if I do better, then like you should do better right. as my financial advisor. All that meant was okay, if Brennan is managing my portfolio and he grows at 20% this year, then he should get more than if he grows at 1%. 
But when I step back and think about it, and correct me if I'm wrong, you are making more, right? Because if you grow 20% and you're charging a fee of assets under under right. management, right. you're still making more. It's just that you're not selling specific stocks, ETFs, uh, mutual funds that you earn a higher commission and it may not be better for my portfolio. Correct. So the fee-based strategy is the most, uh, in my opinion, the most elegant alignment of client and advisor interest because mm. if the client has more money, the advisor makes more money. Yeah. If the client has less money, the advisor makes less money. That's not always practical for all financial tools. Insurance doesn't work that way. It can be better to buy individual bonds on commission than pay a fee on it. So you know, it's, But generally, that, that holds up. So I would say... Uh, you know, commissions, you don't want to be worried that your uh, financial advisor is calling you to sell this or buy that uh, because they need a paycheck. Yeah. You know, so if you take the fee-based strategy, that, that eliminates it. There's also another option, which is fee-only. I don't want to spend too much time talking about it because not a lot of people do it. You essentially, if you're a do-it-yourself kind of person, a fee-only advisor could make sense. So that could make sense for you. You know, have some professional some professional look at it and they'll yeah. charge you, you know, I don't know how much, you know, maybe a thousand or 2000 bucks or something like that. And then to say, yeah, you're doing a good job or do this a little differently. And then you go out and implement on your own rather than paying an ongoing fee. Yeah. I'm curious about inflation because I don't want to get too political on this. However, it's easy not to. It's <laughs> I know. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, like you look at inflation and you, you wonder a, like why it, why it's happened like what has caused it and then well the reason why is bipartisan so. <laughs> okay so so okay well why and you know we had this conversation oh maybe a year or two ago and i don't recall exactly you know what what came of it or what sparked it but yeah. I, I have i have thought and let's just explore this idea i have said and so biden's president right now yep. trump was a prior president yeah um I've liked to think of myself as like a fiscal conservative. Okay. However, when the stimulus package hit during COVID, uh-huh. I understood that there was people really struggling financially. I took a I took a big hit financially as well. But that stimulus package, that influx of money, when that was being released, my thought was this is going to destroy the economy and create massive inflation in the very near future because you can't print trillions of dollars and expect the price of everything not to go up like good crazy. instincts so yeah the the federal government in over that two year time over the past two years maybe it's a little more than two years now because we're in june yeah, uh, right. but essentially over the past two years since covid began increased the amount of money in circulation by about 40 percent which is almost say, double no or, 40 percent. Okay. so it's almost like so not half, so, again yeah. half again half yeah so if you think about it and i've written about this in my newsletters in the 245 year history of the united states all of the money that was ever released into circulation was in, increased by 40 percent trillions of dollars it's something like i think it was like eight trillion dollars and um Unless you have a commensurate increase in productivity, essentially what that means is that prices are going up by 40%. So the Econ 101 example that works really well to explain this is say you have an economy whose productive assets are represented by 10 apples. And you have all of the money in the economy represented by $10. For simplicity's sake, it's pretty easy to say you can exchange each apple for $1. Let's say the monetary authorities come and they get, say, boom, now there's $20 in the economy, but you still only have 10 apples. So now you can exchange each apple for $2. So the price in nominal terms of the apple just doubled. So essentially what they did was increase the amount of money in circulation without a commensurate increase in the economy's productivity will lead with long and uh, you know, variable lags uh, to a, a inflationary regime. But that is not the only reason that we are experiencing uh, inflation. Uh, but it is a, a major and predictable um, yeah, outcome of it. So I think that if they were to do it over, uh, you know, maybe they wouldn't do the PPP as generously, or maybe they would cut benefits off and 
you know, there's, you know, it's time to pay the piper and there's no avoiding it now. Who gets hit the worst in inflation? I've always somewhat believed that, that politicians at, at both, on both sides at every level, I generally believe they're, they're trying to do their best for their constituents. I generally believe that I'm more cynical than you. (laughs) I know that. (laughs) I think that, I think that in a lot of ways they believe that what they are doing should have a positive impact in some way. Now we can argue the merits of that, but I, I, I look at like this, this, idea of providing these PPP loans and these stimulus checks. And I think the idea was good. Let's give people money to float their bills for a couple months so that they could get by because we don't want people really struggling. However, understanding the impact of inflation on specifically the lower and lower middle class needed to be considered because if you own assets in an inflationary period, you're much better off. Well, who doesn't own assets? Like the poor and lower middle class. So am I right or wrong when I assume inflation more so impacts the the lower middle class than any other group of people? You are absolutely correct. And there will be a political comeuppance, most likely because of that, uh, that we haven't foreseen. And um, yeah, I grew up like that. So you know, not, you know, wearing hand-me-down clothes or having to use last year's school books or notebooks for the next year. Cause I mean, so, uh, or the number, you know, to bring it up to a higher level, the number of people who are partially filling their gas tanks has gone to the moon mm-hmm. recently because, you know, you, you know, or the people who are shopping for the lowest price gas station i was just reading about this last week is you know they're going up up and up there's a website called gas buddy that tracks this stuff so uh the people who you know uh i'm a and got myself into a position where i don't have to worry about you know affording groceries for the week you know if they are 25 dollars more expensive this week than they were last week you know we're not gonna not buy the food but there are people out there, a lot of them, who are not going to buy the food. And so while coming back to your argument about how it makes sense that you would want to help people in a situation through a, a crisis like the COVID crisis, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody was against it at the time. Um, there were a few people who said this could be real bad down the road and you know uh, they tried it and so now it's time to pay the piper and I don't know that there's a a, the way I don't think there's a way around it but the Federal Reserve is certainly going to try and uh, this is where things get real interesting so I don't know if you want to go there or not but well I mean I'm I understand like so the Federal Reserve they pretty much dictate interest rates Right. Price I mean, of money, yes. Price of, yeah. Yep. So, I mean, they're gonna. They've talked about. They've talked about trying to beat inflation, right? I mean, that's they that are trying to, to cause. They wouldn't say this again. It's my opinion. They are trying to cause a recession and a bear market to reduce inflation. So that would hurt. It's kind of. A, that would hurt the poor people ultimately more too, because ultimately what they're saying is that we are inflation is too high and it's persistent. Therefore, we need to uh, cause a recession, um, cause people to lose their jobs so they can afford even less of the gas. I mean that doesn't make any sense. What's the <laughs> what's the benefit? What they're doing. Like, what's the benefit of it though? Uh, or what's it, what's their perceived benefit? I should say their perceived benefit is they're trying to tamp down demand. Okay. And they're trying because to tamp people... down demand by and large by making people have less money. Now that you know people who have rely on their portfolios are probably thinking about their budgets more seriously these days. And if you are considering, you know, hiring 
uh, the number of job openings has begun to decline and the number of um, uh, unemployment claims has begun to rise. And so, you know, oddly, Powell made a comment. Who's the um, Jerome Powell is the Fed chairman who made a comment that he basically wants to reduce the number of jobs out there to tamp down inflation. So there it is a comedy of errors and that's not a political i mean it's just they're they made an error on the way up and they're causing another error on the way down by tightening monetary policy into a recession which has never happened before so you know it's gonna it's gonna be interesting so what can we do what can i what can i do what can a listener do who is like okay so this is good (laughs) <laughs> like something to look forward you, to here you, and, and you know, inflation and recession and and so my opinion is you play defense okay so how do we play defense yeah uh, i don't know that there's a great way for me to answer that question um on a non-individual basis i mean you you know you would well you what would if reduce start- your number yeah what you if know, you're starting from scratch right so you have Let's say you're not one of the people who are going to have their jobs eliminated, right? You have an income, you can pay, you can pay your bills, you see the writing on the wall. Um, so maybe that, maybe you could pay your bills, but and you have a, a little bit extra to invest. Yeah. Or so you can contribute to your retirement, right? So yeah. how do you and you're thinking, okay, like I'm getting started now. I'm 25 years old. I want to start my portfolio now. What's What's the mindset I should have as I begin my journey of, of starting to starting to build something that's going to last? Well, if you are able to continue to allocate a portion of your earnings to your portfolio, then this will be great because you're going to get a lot of units yeah. <laughs> for that do- those dollars that you're putting in there. The, the riskier thing is, what if you are nearing retirement or just started retirement or in retirement and you're relying on your portfolio while the fed is actively trying to crush you uh that is the the much uh scarier position to be in and uh yeah i get it is there anything you could do at that point though like i mean you could because you don't want to liquidate everything, right? And you don't want to. It's not like so. What, it's not like know, having cash is going to be helpful anyway. You know, that's, that's why it's hard to answer. It just depends. I mean, it, the the answer would be, you know, you want to make sure you have enough money um, set aside in your portfolio and conservative stuff to make it through the next at least five years. Okay, that's what I would say. That's a starting point, but that's always true. You know, if you're gonna if you're in a distribution portfolio or you're going to be retiring in the next couple of years, you know, you want to make sure. You've thought that through, and um, the the then it's you know what do you invest in that's going to get uh, that's going to benefit from this regime change? And you know we already talked about it: it's commodities, things, real assets, things that did well in prior inflationary decades. In my opinion, are far likely to do better, far much more, uh, far likelier to do better than the things that did well over the past ten years. So if you go back to like the nineteen seventies as a good you know was it mark twain said history doesn't history doesn't repeat but it sure rhymes yeah. right? so you know this is probably yeah. not going to repeat exactly but gold did the best um oil did the second best real estate did the next best and then i think farmland did the next best and then uh everything else was flat or negative bond stocks you know all that kind of stuff so you know what i'm doing is encouraging and with my client portfolios is i'm not investing uh you know just assuming that everything is going to bounce back and just go back to the way that it was um and that has been so far a wonderful call yeah you talked about um energy yeah as well so that's another reason why inflation is going to stick around it's because the we have as a collective west underinvested in um energy in, in energy uh particularly in fossil fuels for a variety of reasons many of which are totally legitimate but essentially we've tried we have tried to replace fossil fuels before we had a sufficient alternative 
like solar, like wind, like nuclear. Well, nuclear would be wonderful. Nuclear okay. is, in my opinion, the solution. Um, but the problem is that it takes years to build a nuclear plant. Um, and it's a, a, it'd be a wonder if it could even get done uh, in the United States these days. Um, and the problem is that the uh, fossil fuel industry, whether it's oil, natural gas, or coal, um, has had a an eight-year period of underinvestment where the amount of capital dedicated to sourcing new supplies has been historically the lowest. It, it is, if you look at a chart of capital expenditures by the oil industry, for example, it's never been lower as a percentage of their earnings or percentage of their revenues. And that's been a trend um, for a variety of reasons. The first probably being that oil prices were low. And so there was no, uh, reason to invest in it if energy prices are low um another reason is esg uh concerns environmental social governmental or governance concerns and so lots of large money managers that control these passive these gigantic passive investment vehicles like vanguard and blackrock um are actively discouraging um, energy inclusion and including energy investments in their uh, in their funds uh, there are a lot many pension funds calpers the california pension fund has committed to selling all of their energy fossil fuel uh, companies and so basically it made it impossible for the um the, the companies that pull the oil or the gas out of the ground to fund new investment. But every oil well, every gas field has a natural depletion ratio. And so you know, they all go to zero at some rate. And so the amount of capital investment required just to keep global production of oil and gas flat has not even been happening. And so we are at a point now where we are at the early innings of an energy crisis on a global basis that is going to, one, have a severe inflationary effects. Uh, energy and fossil fuels in particular go into everything. If we were to look around your office right now, it would be hard to find something that didn't have a fossil fuel component <clears throat> in it. Yeah. To the shirt you're wearing, the watch on your wrist, the desk that your elbow's on, the carpet, the lights, the computer, everything. And so when that, it is one of the most fundamental inputs to a developed uh, modern economy. And so when the price of that input goes up, the price of everything goes up. Now this is also coinciding with a period where a majority of the world's population in emerging markets like India and China are coming into the middle class where the energy consumption for middle class families goes up dramatically. And mm. so their hunger, their appetite in China and India, for example, uh, the two biggest examples uh, in world history, uh, their energy needs are going up dramatically. And so the demand for energy is going up. And we have a supply problem with fossil fuels because we have been punishing that. Uh, and, you know, it's a political football, too. And the very first act that Joe Biden did or the very first executive order that he signed was canceling the Keystone uh, XL pipeline. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, you may think that was a good idea or not, but it, if, uh, it definitely exacerbates this problem. And then also, if you pay attention to the physics of energy, there's a... Um, a metric, uh, E-R-O-I-E, energy return on energy invested. And the, uh, you know, civilization has advanced when you have had a greater energy return on energy invested. So if you go back to 17th century or before, the biggest cities in the world, Tokyo or London, or, you know, tended to max out their populations around 1 million people. And the forests around those cities for many, many miles were obliterated. And that was because they used wood. Yeah, for fire, right? For, for energy. For heat. Yeah, yeah for energy. And uh, 
So uh, then coal. They basically said, well, we're out of wood, so now we got to use coal. Fortunately, coal had a higher energy density. And so then uh, city, you, know, you could create uh, pollution, but so did burning wood. But then cities got bigger because you had a more dense source of energy. And then you, had, you went from coal to oil, which was even yet a more dense form of energy. Um, the problem with solar panels and windmills is that their energy density is, is poorer than wood. And so you cannot, they are not substitutes Right. But in a way, they're more renewable. So, not, I mean, not you can't... really, though, because battery technology, batteries are, you require mining of lithium, lithium. Of nickel, and yeah. then they last, they have a, a, you know, a shelf life, and then they're too expensive to recycle economically, so they're put in a landfill. Uh, the amount of steel and uh, copper that goes into making a windmill is gargantuan. And so that is, and then have you ever seen what they do with them when they're done? No. What do they do? They put them in the dirt. In the, uh, yeah. They just create a massive landfill. Uh, the be- That's why I said earlier that the, the best solution from a physics and environmental standpoint is nuclear. Yeah. But isn't there waste from that too? As I remember this correctly, all of the waste from the nuclear power plants, the all of the waste that has ever been created by the nuclear power plants in the United States of America could fit on one football field. What's interesting is that when you when you first brought up the energy, I was thinking the future of cars is is likely going to go electric. Disagree. Um, okay, so we can just we can disagree on that, and that's sure. that's fine too. But the interesting part of that, about that conversation, I think, is more so that it's not like okay, cars are all electric, like we don't need gas and oil anymore like no 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 no. everything in your house is there's gonna take unless some, it's powered oil. unless it's powered by a nuclear power plant then it's probably powered by fossil fuels but well, it's a far less efficient way to do it because say you're uh even have a natural gas power plant then you're, you're you get the power initiated at the power plant and then it has to run over the lines to your garage where it loses 50 yeah. percent. so is that even more efficient than you know, an efficient Honda, you know, uh, internal combustion engine, Honda Civic. You know, no. Right. Emissions wise, I'm curious. And, and I don't know if you even know the answer to this, but um, I thought about this was, okay, well, if everyone in the United States, just for an example, had an electric car and they charged it at their house. Yeah. It's not like, like that energy is coming from some, it's not free energy. It's like, you know, it's that whole phrase, like there's no free lunch. Like, we are creating energy to put in that car. It's it's just not oil. It's coming from the power plant. And New York New York State shut down Indian Point Nuclear Power Plant. Uh, I think it was last year or the year before. Um, and that energy was the most environmentally friendly energy that there is out there. And that the deficit that that created has been filled by natural gas and coal. So our CO two emissions have gone up. In New York. Because of, uh, in my opinion, faulty environmental um, thinking. Man. So to bring this full circle, inflation is sticking around. Even after the port congestion gets figured out, even after this monetary reset yeah. happens, even after um, you know China reopens and they're back to full production um you know we're still going to have an inflation problem because the most fundamental part of a modern society is energy and if you don't want energy then you can go look at areas of the world that don't have any and that's how you're going to live so there will be there is a you know not to get too abstract have you ever heard of the fourth or a fourth turning no i haven't so i have the book at home i haven't gone i haven't read it yet i've listened to the audiobook um some years ago and so i'm but i'm going to reread it because it keeps getting brought up in things that i'm reading which is that every four generations there is a a turning which the last turning was essentially the great depression into world war ii where every four generations there's basically a change in the um societal structure through some cataclysm and the old is thrown out and the new generation comes in 
And, you know, a lot of the things that we're going through, beginning with COVID, um, the energy crisis that we're having, the war in uh, Europe with Ukraine and Russia, it's all very fourth turning esque. So, you know, in your free time, look that up because it's. What do you see in the next 10 years in terms of just the financial future of, and we'll even keep it United States? We are going to have, uh, we have no choice but to have an inflationary decade. And the reason is because there's too much debt. And the 1970s inflation essentially ended when Paul Volcker raised interest rates to astronomical levels, caused a recession, and and uh, as the story goes, that that nipped inflation in the bud. The the thing that's different today, as opposed to the 1970s, was the debt to GDP ratio in the 1970s was 30 percent, and today it's 130 percent. So the national debt on the U.S. is something um, like $30 trillion. So every 1% increase in interest rates costs the federal government $300 billion. So if inflation is running along at 8.5%, you cannot raise interest rates above the rate of inflation, which is essentially what it would take to kill the inflation because you would bankrupt the federal government. The federal government is already running what is known as a primary deficit, which if you add up entitlement spending, interest payments on the debt, and defense, you're already in the red. Tax revenues don't cover that alone. So then you have the discretionary stuff on top of that. Um, So we are already in a situation where we are taking on new debt just to service old debt. And higher interest rates exacerbates uh, a funding crisis, uh, a sovereign funding crisis that is not common, not unique to the United States. I mean, Japan, China, Europe, uh, they've got all these problems, too. Um, so you, you've, you cannot raise interest rates enough to defeat inflation without causing an even bigger problem with government sovereign debt markets Mm. and so therefore it in my opinion is better to think of inflation as a feature rather than a bug and that's how i'm investing my portfolios and will be investing my portfolios over the next i don't know i don't know five to ten years so we've we've been in this situation before too so at the end of world war ii the debt to gdp ratio reached 119 percent uh, and what the Federal Reserve did then was essentially hold, artificially hold down the rate of interest on government bonds. And so if inflation is clipping along at, let's just say, 10%, and the uh, interest rate on government bonds is at 5%, essentially you are going to def- you know, inflate away your debt. So your economy is going to grow at 10%, but you're holding down the cost of your debt at 5%. So your economy is going to outgrow your debt. And your debt that, you know, for the people, the creditors, that's terrible because they're going to get paid back in dollars that are worth a lot less than the ones that they lent. But that's called financial repression. And uh, other than an outright default on Social Security, Medicare, or government bonds, um, it's the only option. So right now we are in a situation where the Federal Reserve is essentially trying to tamp down uh, inflation with mild uh, monetary tightening with you know raising short-term interest rates and they have at least stopped buying new government bonds or funding new government debt and already the stock market is down 20 25 percent and the bond market is down 15 10 to 15 percent with the amount of debt that we have out there, um, something is probably going to break real quick. And uh, that's why I mentioned this is a good time to be defensive. And for what I'm thinking of over the next five to 10 years, it's it's sort of this weird position to be in because I I don't remember being this excited about (laughs) my portfolio future returns. um, Because if, they, if the scenario plays out along the lines that I'm thinking of, then things like uh, commodities and 
gold are going to go to the moon. Like you said, it's not completely unprecedented, but I think we can learn from the past. Um, I, I am curious. <laughs> you tell the politicians that. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so you, you're a father. Yeah. How important is it for you, someone who has made a career in, in finance and understanding economy, how important is it for you to instill money mindset or investing or just the understanding, the value of, of goods, of service, of money to your daughter? It will become more important. I mean, she's six. So, you know, I'm not trying to get her to pay for things out of her, uh, you know, allowance or, you know, we try to point out that things are too expensive. And so she'll ask if a toy is too expensive when we're Mm -hmm. at Target or something like that. Um, So I don't know. You're you're a dad, too. I'd be curious. When do you really want to start getting more intentional with those kinds of things. Cause I would say up till now, you know, she's, we've been sort of de minimis on it. Um, for me growing up, we were poor. So there was just never money for anything. You know, if I wanted clothes, then I they had to come, had to come from my, my job. So I've yeah. worked since I was 14. Uh, so it's a good question that I probably should, spend more time thinking about. So you tell me what you think, because I'm curious. Well, it's, it's hard because on one hand, like you said, you know, when you grow up wanting yeah. and, and without, I think that you can end up in a situation where you become an extreme spender when you do have money. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's multiple examples of people who grew up getting everything they want. And I don't know if it's a lack of education. I don't know if it's just an entitlement, you know, that Lisa and I tend to at least discuss with specifically my older son, right? At at 10 years old, he's kind of understanding, like, I want to buy this. I want to buy this. Um, And we don't want to tell him that he can't afford certain things because he does have some money from chores, from doing whatever, but we want to we want him to understand the value of his dollar and what it can get him. So I'll just give you an example. Like a lot of times he says, um, like he plays baseball right now mm-hmm. and he's been, you know, a lot of the kids at, at the baseball field have these expensive baseball bats. Okay. And I'll say, okay, that bat, if we go to Dick's costs $350. No way. Yeah. It's crazy. Really? First of all. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you going to get for that $350? Uh, are you going to, are you going to hit the ball a hundred feet further? Are you going to hit the ball? You know, if you get up 10 times and right now you hit it five, are you going to hit the ball seven times? Right. What is that? What's that value of that? Like, is that $350 bat yeah. going to be that much better than the hundred dollar bat? You're able to buy at Dick's or is it a social thing? Where, yeah, or, yeah. or is it, are you just trying to look cool in front of your friends? Right. And you know, and ultimately I think it's just having the conversation is good. Um, and then we always default to, you're not getting the $350 <laughs> bet because it's a $350 bet. <laughs> right. Right. But I think it's just kind of like making them aware. I mean, I don't know. We, we talked about doing like, um, over the summer, like doing an investing, um, like a mock investing thing where, where we bought different stocks and just looked at what they did over time. And I know that you that's could do that idea. with like TJ Ameritrade. Yeah, it's fun. And, you, so, and you know, that's a great way to teach people about, you know, delayed gratification too. Yeah. And ultimately that's what it's about, right? It's, you know, can I, I could do this now or I could do it later. And if you are willing to do it later, then ultimately your later is going to be pretty good if you make that decision over and over and over and over again. So how do you teach? In my mind, as I'm thinking through this just on the fly, is delayed gratification. And yeah. so if you could, and I probably should be better about it too, you know, tell, you know, Phoebe, Phoebe is my daughter's name, you know, that you, you know, if you, if you do this chore now, then we'll reward you with something that, you know, gratifying later on. Or, you could have maybe there's some games you could play like you could have one lollipop today but if you wait until tomorrow you could have two and if you wait till the weekend you could have five i don't know the probably it's all sort of in my mind along that that delayed gratification and you had mentioned 
you know, people who grow up poor being, uh, spend, you know, big spenders or people who grow up in when money is never a problem, not caring about, you know, having money problems. I never was able in my own life through my own anecdotes, able to suss out any coherent, consistent dynamic like that. So, you know, I grew, I grew up, um, you know, when we had, we had bouts of very real poverty and, um, you know, and that was formative for me. Um, that was gave you know I hated it. So all I knew was to get good grades, and you know, you know it's worked out wonderfully for me. But you know, I have um, um, some cousins who w- w- did not have experience the poverty that I had, and I would say even were upper middle class, or, or if not more. And you know, they're wonderful people. They're some of my favorite people. I love them and they make good choices. So, you know, those are just two anecdotes, but I don't know. I think it's a, I don't know if it's, you know, as a, as an, uh, as a parent of somebody who comes to it with my background, I've had a mission to not, to ensure that my kids don't have to go through what I went through but that is a catch 22 because going through what I went through also made me who I am today. And, uh, so if you were to ask me, would I do it any differently? The answer would be no. However, I'm still not going to do that to my, <laughs> I'm still not going to do that to my kid. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you have to hope that there, you know, you can, you can teach them that, uh, how to be a good person um, without having them go through some of the real trials. And I look all around, I can see that that's true. So, yeah. Well, Brennan, I think that's an awesome spot to, uh, to pause this until next time. Cool. I think, I think we have gone through a lot in terms of, you know, expectations, where we are now, how we can have a smart mindset going into the future. I apologize for scaring your audience. <laughs> no, not at all. I, I think, you know, you say scare, but it's it's reality in a lot of ways, right? And, and while, while some people may be optimistic, others are pessimistic, and I think it's just the reality of the situation we're in, you know, no one can predict the future, but people can prepare for it. And I think that's that's key. So, if someone is listening to this, and, and this is going to be a Rochester, New York podcast. Um, however, if someone is looking for some financial advice, you're here. You're here in Rochester, man. How can people get a hold of you and uh, and and maybe have you manage your portfolio? Um, well, uh, go to sageready.com and... Um my i'm uh my that's where i hold my practice and there are a variety of other practices there so uh if even if i can't help you i'm sure we can find somebody that that can nice man and that link will be in the show notes so i do like to ask three questions at the end of every podcast i know you've 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 listened so you know what they are hopefully um but the first question is what is the most impactful book that you've ever read how to win friends and influence people by dale carnegie i was an introverted unconfident shy uh wallflower and i always was envious of people who could walk into a room and fast make friends and have a sort of charisma and uh you know i went from being very poor at it to being quite good at it by learning the tools in that book which opened so many doors for me Mm, that's awesome second question is if you could have a drink with anyone in the world, past or present, who would it be? What would you drink and why? Abraham Lincoln uh, to say thank you. Just just thank you? Yeah. Nothing else? You wouldn't yeah. ask him anything? Neither one of us drink alcohol too, so <laughs> it would be some apple juice or something. I don't know. Oh, man. It's, um, Abe Lincoln would be interesting for... for a lot of reasons. Right. Um, you redeemed and affirmed the experiment that through which I have benefited so greatly. Yes, and we we actually. Uh, it's interesting you say, Blink. And I was. We watched. Um, when I say we, my family, my wife, and, and kids, and I watched. Remember the Titans yesterday, and 
it was eye-opening. I, I love that movie. I think it's one of the best movies ever made, personally. Okay. Have you seen it? No. Okay. Uh, it's so a football movie, right? It is. It's it's a football movie, and Denzel Washington is, is a football coach from, okay. um, I want to say it's 19, love Denzel Washington. 1971. It's placed in, okay. uh, and it's in what was the segregated south of Virginia, uh, in an all-white school that became segregated in the first year, uh, the head football coach that that was there was a white guy who was supposed to be, you know, a Hall of Fame coach. He was going to be inducted into the the high school Hall of Fame for Virginia that year, okay. and they ended up taking his job and giving it to this black coach um, as they integrated the school. The school school board Is did that this. Denzel's character, and that's Denzel's character. And there was a lot of uh, hatred and, and argument at the time about why this was happening and, and how they could do this to such a prominent coach and, and such a prominent school. And ultimately, it's a, it's a beautiful story about how, how black and white come together as a family uh, in a time uh, on this football team and be accepting of each other, even when everything was chaos around them, specifically in the integration of the school itself. It's a beautiful story, but... What happened was it it opened up these conversations with my kids about why why were they treating these black kids this way? Why were they why did they call this coach a monkey? Why, you know, and it was this it, in a way it was it was so inspiring to know where we are now compared to where we were then. And we're only talking 40, 50 years ago. Which is the amazing thing, right? Which um, was a gigantic improvement over the fifty years before that, over the fifty years before that. Exactly. So the and question that, that I think of is, what are we doing now? <laughs> that in fifty years we're going to be like, what idiots we were. <laughs> I know. There's probably so much, right? That, and I, that I think, takes extreme genius to see. So I, don't, I don't think I have it. So yeah. Well, my takeaway from it is just be kind and accepting to everybody regardless. And, you know, I'm just going to be supportive of everybody that I can and try not to try not to at least, you know, instill my my morals on on their decisions. But who knows? Your kids have a good dad. <laughs> well, let, thank you. I appreciate that. Last question. So the Every Breath Counts podcast, it has a twofold meaning. On one hand, you have a finite amount of breaths in your life. And you need to use those breaths to do what you can to accomplish the greatness that's within you um, and accomplish anything you can. And on the other hand, you have a finite amount of breaths in your life and you need to use those breaths to be grateful for each and every breath you have. So how do you make every breath count in your life? I pursue an intentional attitude of gratitude in everything that I do. And that's how I start my day with a prayer of gratitude. And uh, whenever you hear a bad story, you know, in the news or something like that, I always think how grateful I am that that didn't happen (laughs) to me. And uh, I've also been confronted with this uh, more recently because my practice has been getting busier. And so I've basically had to become more selective about uh, taking on clients and, you know, telling my colleagues at work that, you know, my number one priority is being a dad. And this is all great, but, you know, my heart is, is there. So I've, I've done a good job, especially over the past three years of uh, maintaining perspective about what's really important and about what I'm really trying to achieve with these breaths that uh, I'm blessed with having. And the foundation of it is gratitude. Brennan, dude, this has been a blast. I want to thank you and commend you because you've been there for a lot that I've been through. I, I can recall a lot of great nights out, hanging out, and one in particular. I was going through a hard time. It was my dad just passed away. Yeah. And, um, and I, I, you know, I text you and I was like, Hey man, I'm just sitting out by the fire. I don't know what you're up to. And you came over and we just sat together for, I don't know, two or three hours. hours, Yeah. Yeah. And we just talked and, um, that's the kind of guy you are. And I know that you care about people and I know that you're kind and compassionate and you're a good dad. And I respect that. So thank you for being a friend to me 
for coming on the podcast and just sharing your wealth of knowledge about finance, about fatherhood. And uh, I appreciate it, man. So well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's been exciting for me. And uh, say all that stuff right back. And one thing I would say is that um, I look for role models all over the place. And, um, you know, one of the things that I look to you for is, is uh, how good of a dad you are and how much time and commitment you spend with your boys and how, your fo- how that is your focus. And, um, you know, I watch and uh, I'm impressed. And you're a role model for that for me. So thank you. Right back at you. Well, thank you so much. Guys, if you are looking for a financial planner and you fit the criteria to be a client of Brennan's. I I couldn't suggest him more. He'll listen to you. He's a great guy with a really great understanding about um, the situation we're in and and how to manage it financially. And if not, just take this advice, make some smart decisions, be aware of, of the situation we're in, do the best you can, be the role model for your kids, for your friends, and make every breath. Hey, y'all. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I can't articulate how grateful I am for you. If this episode was inspiring, motivating, or educational, it would mean the world to me if you hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen and left a positive five-star review. And if you want to learn about new episodes as they come out, check out my Instagram at everybreathcountspodcast and sign up for my newsletter at everybreathcountspodcast.com. Have a great day and make every breath count.